We uh, come to the last night of the series, and uh, I've left myself too much to do, but uh, what's new? A couple of things, just real quickly. Several have asked about uh, CDs. For I don't know a lot about that, but I believe that uh, I know that they have been recording the Sunday night series, and I believe those are available at the bookstore with, if you give them a little time, I don't know what the arrangement is. I might mention, and I do this somewhat trepidatiously, but I have a CD, which is a set of audio MP3s, and there are actually two series on here. It's called When God Wore Sandals, and uh, a survey of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and there's a series on there that I did in in a class out in California, and it's The Full Life of Jesus. And then there is a second series on there, which is very, very parallel to what we've done. It is the Passion Week series, Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, it's, I did it in a church up in Canada, and uh, the guy really, good de- friend Bill Emberley, gave me a lot of time. So some of the stuff that I've had to kind of uh, cheat on a little bit might be on there. There's also a full set of notes on, on the, not only these, but much more extensive notes. So if you'd be interested in that... Uh, I don't have any with me now, but you could see me. And, and uh, I, I, uh, I think I may have mentioned to you before that some years ago I just uh, committed myself to taking every opportunity God set before me to share the life of Christ. I think it's much neglected and overlooked. And as I've insisted before, I think people are hugely advantaged. Christians, believers, are hugely advantaged to come to grips with the life of Jesus and let that life uh, get a hold of their hearts. And so if there's any way that can be a help to you, uh, I'd be delighted to share it with you. We, we, when, I, when I'm in churches and so on, I ask for a $20 donation, but I always say, if you can use it, you know how to use an MP3 and you'll use it and share it with others and so on, uh, and that's at all a problem, I want you to have it. You can take it. Now, I don't have it with me tonight, but, uh, but I do have some at home and I can get some if, if that's of interest. All right, we are, in fact, ready for Friday, the day of messianic perfection. Let me just take you back to that little verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul says, and I mentioned this some weeks ago, that the word of the cross, I think it's one of the most compelling and instructive figures in in Paul's writings. He says, the word of the cross. The old King James translated the preaching of the cross, and sometimes it's the message of the cross. But the word in the Greek is logos, logos to stauru, the, the word of the cross. And logos in the scriptures is, is God communicating to man. It's revelatory. And the fact is that God is speaking through Jesus at the cross. We come to that most awful and most blessed scene in all of human history and all of the scriptures, the death of the prince of life. And it's staggering in all of its parts. And it's a picture which, um, as I say, it takes a better telling than I can, it deserves a much better telling than I can bring to it. But on the other hand, I want us to contemplate it and uh, understand in so doing that God was revealing himself. There is much about the person and the wisdom and the justice and the perfections and the mercy and the love and the grace of, of creator God that is articulated, that is revealed, that is manifested more graphically and more dramatically perhaps in those horribly unspeakably black hours when Jesus hung on the cross than than any other time I think in human history it is such an important scene it's important to background it so let me just do the review thing which I've I've you've gotten used to but uh remember we 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 talked about Sunday as a day of messianic presentation it was on Sunday last that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem. He made very careful preparation. It was a day which had been foreseen by prophets some 400 years earlier, the day. And uh, Jesus uh, very carefully arranged to be received by that city, by the route that he took, by the timing of his arrival, by the fact that he was traveling with all sorts of people who went into the city at Passover season announcing that Jesus would soon be there. So on Sunday morning, in the midst of excitement and uh, jubilation that's probably hard for us to imagine, the city erupted in happy welcome of Jesus as the Messiah whom he claimed to be. Jesus and Jesus only knew how shallow and superficial, I guess those are the same thing, but how superficial and self-serving that welcome was. And so on Monday he returned, and we refer to Monday and Tuesday as days of messianic proclamation in the sense that 
Jesus so dramatically puts, puts, sets the truth concerning himself and specifically that which he demands of men before that city. And again, uh, using the question given Sunday, why Friday? The answer is Monday and Tuesday when Jesus, first of all, cleanses the temple, but then he goes further. He had cleansed it earlier and there was strategy in the cleansing. But in this second cleansing, he went further and he possessed the temple for two days. And uh, during those two days, he behaved as Messiah to a degree uh, unmatched by any other time in his life. And he uh, uh, put to his silence his enemies and so on. But then at the close of Tuesday afternoon, before he leaves the Temple Mount, he pronounces those excoriating woes, that series of woes upon the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, that's important because the scribes and the Pharisees were the spiritual heroes of the people. And they were the ones who had convinced them. They, they, they were the primary arbiters. It was ultimately uh, a mind uh, more cosmic, perhaps, than just the Pharisees that it was coming from, if you know what I mean. But it was a doctrine born in the mind of demons. But, but uh, the populace had been persuaded that, uh, that the law was intended as a means of righteousness, and by keeping the law, they could satisfy God, and Jesus had come. That was never the truth, by the way. That, that was a lie. It's interesting to me. I find so many people who come to uh, uh, Galatians and Romans, and they have... Paul kind of introducing something new about the gospel, how the gospel is by grace through faith. But he argues for it from Abraham, for heaven's sakes. This is Old Testament stuff. This is, it's never, ever been the case that men could satisfy God by their own merits, by their own works. And so you always trust in the provision of God. And now Jesus came and made the claim that he was the ultimate provision. So at any rate, he, by setting himself, as he had done earlier in his ministry at the Sermon on the Mount, by setting himself so deliberately against the popular Pharisees and scribes, Jesus said, you make a choice, right? And he left the city with that choice on Tuesday afternoon. Now we talked about this last week quickly, but actually a couple of weeks ago as well. Tuesday night, late on Tuesday night, Judas had stolen off to a home, a private home south of the city, where lived uh, the high priest Caiaphas, and uh, Caiaphas was there uh, bemoaning the fact with his fellow Sanhedrinists that they were not able to take Jesus during the, pas- during the uh, Passover week. They were enraged with him beyond measure because of Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. They longed to see him dead, but he was so wildly popular that they couldn't do it until Judas showed up and offered to help them arrest Jesus in the absence of the multitude. And as we stressed last week, there began... On Tuesday night, a huge, I say conspiracy, a plot that was designed to get Jesus arrested and tried and condemned before the city woke up. And it was designed that the whole plot was to arrest him in connection with the Passover because their problem was that they had so much difficulty arresting him in the absence of the multitude. And uh, by the way, uh, Josephus, the, the first century, I may have mentioned this, and there are those historians who, who question this, and Josephus is not Bible for heaven's sakes, he's perfectly liable to mistakes, but I think there are good reasons to take his word for this, that there may have been over two million people in the little city of Jerusalem at Passover at this season of the year. And they were all crowding in every nook and cranny, uh, keeping the Passover in this corner and that, and so the idea that the Sanhedrinists could have somehow ferreted him out, you see that? And so without Judas's help, they knew they could never find him. And so they had despair. But now Judas says, no, no, I will help you take him in the absence of the multitude. And the plan is laid to arrest him in connection with the Passover. Wednesday is a silent day as all this is laid in place. But then Friday, Thursday is a day of messianic preparation in two ways. First of all, in the upper room. Jesus works hard to prepare his disciples for what he had been talking to them for just over six months about. Did you lose the preposition in that sentence? But he had been talking about this for some six months, about the fact that he was going to die. You remember we stressed, and this is so important, that they were absolutely clueless. They refused to believe it. They could not, and I think maybe more importantly, they would not take except Jesus' clear message that he was going to die an awful death. Remember that again and again, uh, in, in Matthew 16, 21 to begin with, but in Luke 18, 31 to 34, and then in several other times in the Gospels, 
Jesus gets his disciples alone in anticipation of this moment and tells them explicitly that he's going to die. And every time he says, and on the third day, I will rise again. But they're absolutely unwilling, unable, you sort it out for yourself, to hear it. And it's the furthest thing from their minds. Matter of fact, I said to you last week, I think when they gathered in the upper room, when this dispute arose among them, I think it probably had to do with the seating arrangement because they wanted to be close to the master of the feast because they were hoping for a for a really noble assignment, you know, one of the larger tribes, if you don't mind, in the kingdom responsibilities. And uh, that's where their mind is. And I'm going to say it again. I think if you and I had been part of the number, that's probably where our mind would have been. I don't want to be too hard on them. But having said that, uh, Jesus in the, in the upper room uh, uh, announces the betrayers at the table. Judas gets up and leaves to fetch the Sanhedrinists. We talked about this before, that what's happening here is that uh, Judas is going to make his way, if I can find it, all the way up here to Fortress Antonia to fetch the soldiers. That's the Fortress Antonia. And uh, here's the place of the Last Supper, way down here in the western hill. And so I always got to orient myself. And uh, Judas goes all the way up uh, to to fetch the Sanhedrinists, and then uh, he's going to make his way back to the upper room. Jesus, meanwhile, John 14, 31, gets up and leaves and goes to the place of Gethsemane. I said to you last week, forgive me, he's not trying to escape. He's trying to buy himself a little time, and it's unspeakably precious time. So he makes his way to Gethsemane where he pours his soul spirit out, as it were, before the Father and three times begs that the cup might pass from him, but always insists that not my will but thine be done. Just real quickly, I want to say, I I appealed to the verses in Luke 22 last week, verses 43 and 44, where you have the reference, first of all, to the angels and then to the great uh, drops of sweat. It is true that those verses are, uh, and I bring this up very cautiously, and if, I'm, if I trouble your soul spirit, shame on me and let's talk afterwards. I haven't got time to develop this at all. But most of you are familiar with the fact that there are some places in the New Testament where there is what, where there is what is called a textual variant in the ancient manuscripts, of which we have thousands, and those thousands give us absolute confidence in the text of the New Testament. But there are just a few, very, very few places where there is some little question, and one of them is those two verses. I've spent a lot of time with that question. I'm confident they belong. And let me just say this, that I think the reason that they are missing in some of the earlier manuscripts of the New Testament is because early, very early... Look, look, (laughs) I keep saying, you and I have had a couple of thousand years to get used to this idea of the God-man. It's it's impossible to overstate how troubling this was to early Christians. And not they, they believed it, they bowed the knee to it, but, but working it out and coming up with even with a glossary of terms to give expression to it and, and sorting out exactly what the Bible said and so on was very, very difficult. And you remember that the first grand controversy or heresy that erupted in the Christian church, the very early neonate nascent church, was the deity of Jesus. And early Christian thinkers went to the Bible and they simply said, well, let's check. That's what we believe. But some people are saying otherwise. And they ransacked the scriptures and come away, came away with the absolute, undeniable, inescapable conviction that Jesus is God, very God. Amen and amen, right? And that was, that was, that was codified into a creed called the Nicene Creed. And we've all sort of stood on those shoulders and gone back and checked their work ever since and found it to be absolutely biblical. Well, the next great Christological heresy was his humanity. There was a heresy called docetism, and I've talked to you about this before. Docetism is the notion, it comes from a Greek word, which means to seem, that Jesus only appeared to be human. He was just dressed up like human. He was just God perpetuating the illusion that he was man. This is the Clark Kent thing. And that, that, that erupted in the church. And, uh, and it was, again, in a, in a creed uh, articulated. And we don't believe in the creeds, but the, I mean, our, our, our faith is not in the creeds, and we're not bound to them in any sense. But, but they reflect some very, very important milestones in Christian thought. And in the Chalcedonian Creed of 451 AD, it was, it was, it was, it was established what the Bible said. Not because philosophically this makes sense to us. We're never going to be comfortable with the God-man. I mean, we're, we, we cherish it, but we don't understand it. There's no analogy anywhere in the, in the moral or physical universe for it. So we, we just have to bow the knee to what the Bible says. And what the Bible says is that God 
that Jesus is man, very man, as well as God, very God. Now, this is our faith. This is We cherish this. Amen and amen. Matter of fact, John says that if you deny that, you're an antichrist, that Jesus is, is come as, as human being. But there was a season, and sometimes it lingers, and I've gotten after you about this. I've got to quit talking about this. But there was a season when, as people read the accounts, they had trouble accepting that Jesus lived his life out as a real human being. And one of the areas where that was the most troublesome was Gethsemane. And I can take you to one source after another where they'll argue that that was just for our benefit, that Jesus really knew better, that his heart wasn't really heavy, that uh, he was going through this uh, bit of a charade, if you don't mind, because he wanted to impress on you how heavy the burden was going to be. But he's God, and he knows it's not going to be that bad, and he's going to, or whatever. How's that? That helpful to you? You know? It's hideous in my mind. But I, I got started talking about those two verses. Those were the two verses that people had trouble with. And they were excised from some text just because people couldn't... No, I'm not going to say it that way. They would not bow the knee to what the Bible says explicitly. But I'm going to say it again, having brought it up, that you play fast and loose with the humanity of Jesus. And number one, you don't have a redeemer who is your kinsman. And he has got to be your kinsman. And number two, you don't have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities if this is all just a play act. And I can't imagine anything more hideous than the notion that this is all just a play act, but I got myself worked up. So <laughs> my point is, uh, we talked about those verses uh, last week, and, uh, and, and a couple people have said, well, now is it fair? I believe it is. And uh, I, I th- I'm absolutely confident that those, those are part of the, the gospel record, the God-breathed, inspired gospel record. And I think they give us such insight. In, and I said to you last week, and let me just repeat it and get back on course here, that I, I, I don't believe, you know, in that, in that regard, uh, I don't think I mentioned this before, and this is kind of the 500-pound, uh, not, what do we say, the elephant in the middle of the living room or something. You know, Gibson's passion, have we talked about that at all? I don't want to go anywhere with this. But maybe I said to you that, that the emphasis on the, the physical suffering of Jesus, I found terribly distracting at best and misrepresentative at worst. Now, I'm not here to beat up on the film. I don't know anything about film. I am reading a book. I won't go there. Around to it, but but uh, I have a dear friend who has wrote, written a book and asked me to, to endorse and review it, and so I'm in the middle of it. It's very good. Meaning at the movies, and he, he understands how to, how to watch a film. He keeps talking about Christians who just go because they want to be entertained. But uh, they don't find a message there, you know. But, uh, but, but I, I lose my way. The point is that it's very, very difficult to reduce... Uh, spiritual suffering, the suffering that is really petrifying, horrifying Jesus' soul spirit, is the prospect of being separated from the Father, whatever that entails. And it's hard to reduce that to physical images, right? And so we kind of revert to what we can reproduce in some imaginary graphic way, and that is the physical image. The physical suffering is unspeakably awful, but that's not what terrified Jesus. I want to emphasize that. But I, I go back to it by the same token the cross, the scene at the cross, especially after those three hours of darkness, and I'll be there in just a minute, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That we're never more desperately forlorn, um, misery-soaked words spoken in all of human history. And for the second person of a triune Godhead to cry out in that fashion is, is soul-jarring. But I'm not sure that even that is... is I, To me, the place, I'll say it again, where we get the most graphic and compelling insight into the terror of the cross is, in fact, Jesus' anticipation of it in Gethsemane. And and we tried to point out last week that earlier in the week he had been, if you don't mind, his soul had, he had had known the impulse, if you don't mind. I'm I'm avoiding the word tempt, right? Although I I should say it out loud. He was tempted to say, uh, remember when he said, John chapter 12, what shall I pray? Shall I pray to let me know? I can't pray that. But on Thursday night, three times, once and again, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me. And, uh, but again, not my will, but thine be done. And all of that is such spontaneous and genuine and heartfelt representation of the terror of the cross. Well, let me leave it alone. 
That was on Thursday night, and again, as Jesus emerges from the from the garden on Thursday night, having gathered himself, and I believe with angelic help, staggered from the cross, and as he does, here comes Judas and the Sanhedrinists, and uh, you have this, Jesus is deserted, uh, just as he had said, and uh, he is taken by the Sanhedrinists, and he's going to be tried, first of all, by the Jews, and as we said last week, this is an indictment. This is, a, this is, a, uh, this is an attempt to find an indictment, and... Uh, Finally, they get him, or they really don't get him. They demand, and he acquiesces that he confess out loud that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they determine that he's worthy of death, And uh, but what they're doing, remember we talked about this last week, is in the middle of the night, and that's illegal, and the, the Romans are fussy about these protocols, and so in order to put a, 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 a facade of legitimacy, legal uh, uh, legitimacy over the, 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 what they had done in the middle of the night, they waited until the first blush of dawn, as Luke tells us, and at the very, very first blush of dawn. Now let me take you to John 19 here real quickly. I, I may have talked about this before, but we, we've got some chronological uh, markers along the way here that are very, very important. And one of them, the big one, is in John 19... And verse 14, when he turns, this is after the Roman trial, when Pilate finally acquiesces and turns Jesus over to be tried, uh, to, to crucified, turns him over to be crucified. And John gives us this remarkable note where he says it was the sixth hour. Now let me just, without getting into this at all, we just don't have time, but the fact is that uh, the synoptics tend to lo- use Jewish reckoning, which begins at sunup, so the sixth hour would be noon. But John is clearly using Roman reckoning, which begins at midnight. So the sixth hour would be six o'clock in the morning. So, let's rehearse. It's Friday morning. The city went to bed last night, having celebrated the Passover, having having regaled their soul spirits in the ability of their God to deliver them from a as a covenant people and so on. The city went to bed last night. Jesus, of course, had kept the Passover in the upper room. He was arrested. He he left the upper room, went out to Gethsemane. He was arrested there. There have been a series of trials, and remember, there have been first of all the Jewish attempt to find something with which to accuse him. And as I said, they had done that in the middle of the night, but then in the very blush of dawn. And that's why I always estimate somewhere around 4.30, because you've got a lot that's, gotta go, that's going to go on before Pilate. Does that make sense to you? And all of that's got to be over by 6 o'clock. By about 6 o'clock, Jesus is turned over to be crucified, and, and by then the city is waking up, and they discover it, and the plot that was laid on Tuesday night has, has actually come to fruition. It's been successful, but now Jesus is taken, and by 9 o'clock he's on a cross. So my point is that the Roman trials have to fall. It, it was I don't know that I've said it very clearly, but it was at the very first blush of dawn that you have the last stage of the Jewish trial, when they take Jesus back in and say, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And he confesses. Then they take him to Pilate. So somewhere between the very, very first blush of dawn and 6 o'clock in the morning is when the whole trial before the Romans take place, right? We talked about this last week, and I said that I'd love to be able to spend more time with it, but we just don't have the time. But I have you there in John 19. Let me say again, I appealed last week, I'm repeating myself over much, to that 1 Timothy 6 verse where Paul remembers Jesus giving a good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he remembers it in a way that evidently he expects Timothy to be entirely familiar with it. This is something which evidently really captured their attention, and they spent a lot of time thinking about the way Jesus conducted himself before Pilate. And it's interesting that in that verse, in 1 Timothy 6, 13, Paul says, uh, he says to Timothy, I drew thee by the living God and by uh, 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 Jesus Christ who gave a good confession before Pilate. Jesus is totally silent before Pilate, except for those two times where Pilate takes him indoors. Remember I talked about that? In the course of the three, remember he's going to be before Pilate, and then Pilate is going to say this man's guiltless. And the people are going, well, it's more the Sanhedrinists this time are going to say he's been making trouble ever since Galilee. And Pilate hears that word Galilee and says, wait a minute, that's not my jurisdiction. That Herod Antipas, he's here in the next bedroom. So they haul him off to Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas wants to see a miracle and Jesus is absolutely silent. His accusers are throwing their charges at him and so on. Then they bring him back to Pilate and uh, Pilate scourges Jesus. Did we talk about that? The scourging... 
I'll hear people say, well, you know, they, the, the, the scourging was, it had to be uh, 40 lashes, save one. You ever hear that? Because you know, they were supposed to be physically. Well, that was a Jewish protocol. It was a rabbinical protocol. This is a Roman scourging. They can scourge you till late next Tuesday, for heaven's sakes. They don't have any sensitivities about that. But, but scourging was not, I'll come back to this in just a minute. But the fact of the matter is that the scourging was meant to be, de- not meant to be debilitating. If there's anything, I'm going to say this in a minute, but if there's anything the Romans wanted of the cross, they wanted it to be lingering. They wanted a man to live as long as possible on the cross. Now, that doesn't apply quite as immediately to Israel because the Old Testament law uh, had a specific statute against leaving a man's dead body leaving uh, 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 overnight. And so the Romans normally, in the normal course of things, would in fact take the, the bodies off the cross before the day, uh, by the end of the day. But my point is that they wouldn't whip a man horribly before the cross because it would debilitate him and he would die the sooner on the cross. That makes sense to you? So, so the, but the scourging that Jesus uh, received from Pilate was really an attempt to... Uh, the whole point seems to have been he, he, he was trying just to satiate, the, uh, satiate the, uh, the bloodthirstiness of the crowd. And he hoped that maybe by, by whipping Jesus and then putting this mock robe and he had the crown and so on and beho- standing before the crowd and saying, this man, you behold the man, you're saying that this man is a threat and so on. My point is, we talked about this some last week, but let me just say this. Jesus, uh, Pilate made heroic efforts to release Jesus. He was desperate to release Jesus. I think, I think Jesus made a deep, deep impression on Pilate. And, and the only two times, let me take you, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to do it real quickly. I'm doing this all out of order here. I'm a little scattershot. But the first time, go to John 18 and verse 31. The first time, matter of fact, there's a verse here I want you to see for a later reference in just a few minutes. After Jesus has been has been judged guilty of death by the Sanhedrin. Or to say it more carefully, after the Sanhedrin has been able to exact from Jesus the kind of testimony that they believe will enable them to make the case that he ought to die as a seditionist. Because that's exactly what happened, right? So now they bring him to Pilate. And when they first come, verse 31, it says, well, let's pick it up at verse uh, 28 in John 18. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves didn't go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that they might eat the Passover. All right, time out. I'm not going to do this. Now, I'm going to try and be done a little early tonight. We'll break, and then we'll take a little time for questions. But this verse is probably the most problematic verse in the Gospels. Look, there's a whole community of so-called scholars. One of them teaches at a local school here, as you know who just love to insist that the Bible is historically incredible, that it's not worthy of, of your belief, that it's full of uh, uh, errors and contradictions, right? We're not shocked by that, that that community is out there. Guess what? The Gospels are their happy hunting grounds because you've got four people telling the same story. And uh, if there's any play, the, the single most difficult uh, conundrum is right here. Do you see why, by the way? There in verse 28... According to the synoptics, Jesus ate the Passover last night. It's Friday morning. This verse says that the Sanhedrinists, as they were bringing Jesus to Pilate, they didn't want to go into Pilate's house because they were yet to eat the Passover. Now the Passover had to be eaten on Nisan 14. So if Jesus ate it last night, how come these men haven't yet eaten it. Now there are about three or four good solid ways to answer this. I have a favorite. I'll talk about it later on. But suffice it to say this is, this is uh, one of the, the, uh, the, the uh, it's one of the more difficult uh, questions. But leaving it alone because I'll deal with it later honestly. Uh, Pilate says what accusation do you bring against this man? And they said if he weren't an evildoer we wouldn't have delivered. In other words they knew they didn't have much and so they said well just, just crucify him. And Pilate refuses. He says, you take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, which is so instructive because it makes the point 
that this was not about trying Jesus. It was about executing Jesus. They had not brought him to Pilate to be tried, but to be put to death. That's their, they say it as clearly as it can be. But notice verse 32, and I want to come back to this very late. The saying of Jesus, in order that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. Now real quickly, had the Jews been able to dispose of Jesus, how would they almost certainly have done it? How would the Jews have executed him? By stoning. What this says is that it was important that Jesus die by crucifixion which would happen at the hands of the Romans. It was very important. I'll just tell you this, as long as i got your minds on it. There are three times, all in the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about being lifted up. Can you remember any of them? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, what? It actually says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Then in John 8, a very fascinating passage, Jesus is contesting with the Pharisees, and, and they refuse to believe him. And he says, when I am lifted up, then you will know that the things that I speak to you are from the Father. So he, he ties this confidence in his claims concerning himself to being lifted up. And then in John chapter 12, late in his ministry, we ought to go back there, don't lose John 18, but jump back to John chapter 12. Now this is for later, I'm, <laughs> I'm confusing you, but, but as long as I'm here, it's good to... He says it a third time, and it's in John 12. It's actually in that context that we talked about with the, uh, the, the Greeks who came to see Jesus. But in verse 32, John 12 and verse 32, he says, If, he says, I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And, and I've heard people refer to these verses, especially the, uh, uh, the verse in chapter 3 and chapter 8, uh, as if it meant to honor Jesus, to lift him up in the sense that we give him honor and so on. But that's not the point at all. And I can prove to you because look at verse 33 in John 12. This is what I want you to see. This he said signifying by what death he would die. And the Greek word there is type, tupos, the, the type of death he would die. And now over here in John 18, get this, when the Sanhedrinists hauled Jesus before Pilate in the middle of the morning, uh, very, very early in the morning, and they, it's out in the Gabbatha, that pavement where, where Pilate has convened his, his, his tribunal, and, and uh, they say, just put him to death. And Pilate says, you go, you, go, you go try him yourself. And they say, wait a minute, you know that we can't put him to death. And John says, this was done that it might be fulfilled what Jesus had said concerning the type of death he would die. It was terribly, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. If when I'm lifted up, then you'll know that what I'm saying is true. If I be lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. He's talking about dying by crucifixion. We'll come back to it. I'll just leave this question with you. Why was it so imperative that Jesus die by crucifixion? We'll come back to it. Well, the point is, if we go back to John 18, and I'm in trouble now. So the point is that Jesus is... is uh, Pilate takes Jesus into the praetorium for the first time... In verse uh, 33. Now I want to spend just two minutes on this, folks. I haven't got time. I'm going to get myself all whipped up into a lather. But uh, verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus responded in verse 34. He says, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And then Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered to me. What have you done? And then Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Now listen, folks. I cherish, and our pastor has been, has been focusing on this because it's right there in the Bible. I cherish beyond what I can tell you the hope of a literal physical kingdom coming to this earth. I cherish the... the, 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 the we, have been, we have been taught to pray for the kingdom. After you get done acknowledging God's character, you pray thy kingdom come because only then will his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I look for that day, I long for that day when Jesus reigns on this earth and every knee bows and every tongue confesses. Amen and amen. That's premillennialism. That's what the Bible teaches. That's where you're going to be if you take the Bible for what it says. There's a whole community of people and their brothers, and I love them, but I think they're so wrong and it's so dangerous, called amillennialism, who teach that, in fact, Jesus didn't come to offer a kingdom but to redefine the kingdom. And he defined it as something entirely spiritual, and it's here now. Uh, that the kingdom is here now. That this is as good as God can do with human history. Does that, does that delight your soul? But my point is, 
This is their theme verse. You got an odd millennials friend, bless his heart, and he accidentally drops his Bible. He's probably going to flop open to this verse. This is the, my kingdom is not of this world. What, folks, what's going on here? This is so important. Jesus is taken inside by Pilate, and Pilate says, are you a king? What's he asking? Are you guilty of what they are charging you with? Do you pretend to be a king? Does Rome have something to fear from you? Are you a seditionist? And Jesus says, are you asking me this of yourself? or because?" In other words, what he is saying is, Pilate, are you just interested in getting to know me better? Are you anxious to know what I claim? Or are you asking me whether or not what people are charging me with is true? And he cannot allow to stand the charge that he's a seditionist. I've said this before. It is unspeakably important that he be cleared of that charge. And that's what's being asked. As a matter of fact, when, he said, when, when, when Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your people are accusing you. Are. And he says, my kingdom doesn't come as a human kingdom. The point is, my kingdom doesn't come like a worldly kingdom. In other words, no, I'm not a seditionist. I'm not going around and gathering a militia. I'm not hiding in fortresses in the wilderness. I'm not falling upon Roman outposts. There's nothing about the way that I have conducted myself to give you the notion that I'm guilty of this charge. I'm not a seditionist. My kingdom does not come in that worldly fashion. That's what he says. He tells you what he means in the same phrase there in verse 36 where he says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. In other words, no. I'm not guilty of what they're charged with. Does that make sense to you? That's what he means when he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And when Pilate asks the next question, indeed, are you a king? Jesus says, you bet I'm a king. You say rightly I'm a king. And there is going to come a day when he's going to reign on this earth. And, 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 and the notion that Jesus takes this opportunity at, at, at 4.30 in the morning in a private interview with a Roman officer inside the praetorium to give Pilate a lecture on kingdom theology which totally unsays everything the Old Testament says? What could be more ludicrous for heaven's sakes? Am I making sense to you here? So what I'm saying to you is I think this is what Paul has in mind when he says uh, that Jesus gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And I'm just blown away at the care and the tenderness that Jesus has for this man Pilate and how he is so careful to take a stand for the truth. Absolutely, I am not a seditionist. Pilate's going to emerge from this, and you know what he's going to say? This man's guiltless. He's persuaded that the man is not, that Jesus is not guilty of what he's being charged of. Now I've totally made a mess of things. This is what happens. Jesus is, is uh, Pilate again turns him over to Herod. He comes back. Jesus is, is uh, again interviewed by, by Pilate in, in John 19. And then Jesus, uh, and, I, and I mentioned it before, but I want you to go to John 19. This is why I had you here in the first place, for heaven's sakes. Because uh, in John 19, after they emerged from that second interview, John 19 verse 12, it says, from, that, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. I can't tell you how important that is. Jesus did not die. Just read a really good book, but it kept coming back to this that clearly the reason Jesus died was because he claimed to be uh, a king and he was a seditionist. He died as a seditionist. He did not die as a seditionist. The argument for that was being made from the titulus, from the fact that, that on the cross it said Jesus king of... But remember, they tried to get him to say, no, this man claims to be... Do you hear what's there? This man is a seditionist. That's, that's what, am I making sense to you? When the Jews, the Jewish authorities tried to get Pilate to change that placard, that titulus, and put on there, no man, this, don't write he is the king of the Jews, but he claims to be. What they're trying to say is, what he's been, what he's been convicted of is as a, 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 a sedition. And Pilate says, no, he hasn't. I'm not going to write that. Because he wasn't, con- matter of fact, five different times, Pilate has said he's guilty of sedition. Oh, you can't overstate how important that is, Romans 13. Jesus did not die a blemished lamb. He didn't die a seditionist. On the other hand, you stay in that same passage. uh, In verse 12, it says, If you let him go, the people cried out, saying, If you let him go, you're not Caesar's friend. As I said, Pilate caves in. And when he heard that, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment uh, hall and so on. And, uh, and, And it was the preparation day of the Passover, that is Friday, about the sixth hour. He said, Behold your king. They said, Away with him. Away with him, crucify him, and he delivered him to them to be crucified. So it's about 6 o'clock in the morning. Jesus is delivered to be crucified. By 9 o'clock in the morning, he's going to be hanging on a cross on a low hill outside the city of Jerusalem. 
I want to take a few minutes and focus on that scene, and the way we're going to do it is just to think our way through, uh, these are all the trials that we've already talked about, I'm going to get through this quickly, think our way through the sayings on the cross. By the way, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting thing, real quickly. You remember, oh I better not, if I get down there, I love it, but I better not. Uh, let me get to the, to the cross itself. Jesus turned over to be crucified, and it's in this sense that, uh, that it is a day of messianic perfection. But uh, Jesus, uh, you know the story of how he's made to carry his cross, as was standard uh, uh, Roman policy, probably just the cross piece. Very likely there was a place outside of town that uh, was set aside for crucifixions. Let me talk about it real quickly. Rome's great concern was sedition. She had this huge empire. She made merchandise of her people awfully. And thus there was, there was rebellion, there was sedition in this corner and the next. And they were constantly, this is why they built the, Romes, uh, the, the road so they could get their, their troops there quickly and so on. They had a huge army. And I said, just make the point that they had developed, they had fine-tuned crucifixion for they had inherited it from older peoples, at least the Persians did it. But with the Persians, they just, it was just a stake, and they impaled the body on the stake, probably the dead body. But, but the, the Romans had fine-tuned this means of execution, and their whole purpose was to put down sedition. And so they wanted it to be, they wanted to be characterized in four ways. I'm going to give you three now. I'm going to come back to the other one in just a moment. Number one, they wanted crucifixion to be cruel. They wanted it to be hideously cruel. And that's why the scourging. They would scourge a man before with the, with the nine tails on, they open up these, these fresh, deep wounds on his back, all up and down his backside. Because on the cross, very soon after you were affixed to the cross, your, your ribs set in on your breathing apparatus, and you couldn't breathe without hoisting yourself up. And there was, there was provision made to where he could hoist himself up. You could never sleep on the cross. Most people died on the cross of asphyxiation. When you ran out of the capacity to hoist yourself, if you wanted to hasten his death, what would you do? You broke his leg so he could no longer hoist himself up. But the point is, you've got those, those lashes on your back and those deep, newly opened wounds and that rough timber with the splinters. And every time you hoist yourself up, you, you, you thrust those, those splinters into the, into the wounds and so on. And uh, you cry out in, in unspeakable pain. That's what the Romans want. The second thing, they wanted to be cruel. Number, they wanted it to be lingering, as I said. And normally a man would last at least a couple of days into the second day and sometimes into the third day on the cross in, in other cultures, not in Israel. But the third thing, they wanted it to be public. It was always on a low hill outside a main gate. A gate is a bottleneck, and you've got to go in and out of the gate. And this hideous sight is, is playing itself out here. And maybe you take the kids and you hide them in your skirts and you get as far off the side of the road as you can, but you're going to have to go past there. And so it's just a low hill, just high enough so you can't miss it. Does that make sense to you? And all of that because this means of execution had been, as I say, fine-tuned as a means. Now, in other words, if you've got some seditious impulse in your heart, you see what I'm saying? And, and for a couple of days, every time you go in out of the city, there's that poor wretch, and, and in time, the birds begin to peck at his eyes, and, and they were usually low enough that the dogs could nip and, at their, at, and, and, and begin to scavenge the, the feet and so on, and all of that's happening while the man is yet alive, and he's crying out in unspeakable agony and so on, and whatever seditious impulse might be bubbling in your heart. You know, you just might think twice about it. That's the whole point. Now, there was a fourth uh, way in which they wanted to be characterized, but I'll come back to it. But I say that just to make the point that the, the crucifixion is, uh, Jesus dies an unspeakably hideous death. But it is not, I, I, I've said too many times, it's not the physical sufferings that, ought, that we ought to focus on. But at any rate, Jesus is on the cross for, three hour, uh, for six hours. During the first three hours, he speaks uh, three times. And I'll just mention them very, very quickly in passing. I don't know another way to really trace this narrative other than to trace the times that he speaks. And I think it gives us remarkable 
insights. Uh, he cries out, first of all, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I believe that there was a... Now, by the way, I, I need to say, there's no one gospel where you have all seven of these things. You have to put them together. They really fall together very, very nicely. There's not very much question as to the order and so on. But, uh, but at any rate, uh, first of all, he cries to the Father uh, to forgive his attackers and his enemies. And, uh, and, and I think it was heartfelt. And, uh, well, I won't spend any more time with it. Suffice it to say that, uh, well, I, on the one hand, I think there's a profound sense in which the Jewish authorities did know what they were doing. And I get that out primarily of the parable, where Jesus told the parable about the man who had the vineyard. And uh, remember when, when the, the, the long-suffering father finally sent his son. Remember that story, Matthew 21? At the last he said, I'll send my son, my only, my only son, my well-beloved son. Surely they'll reverence him. And as the son approached, the vine dressers did not say, this man claims to be the son, but we don't believe him. What they said was, here comes the son, let's kill him and seize the inheritance for ourselves, which in my mind has such echoes of Caiaphas in John 11 saying, if we don't put him to death, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So on the one hand, I think there was, especially on, on, on the part of the, of the Jewish leadership, a profound understanding. I think, let me just say that as unimaginably difficult as Jesus' claims were, and I've, I've stomped all over that in the course of our time together, the evidence that Jesus gave, first of all, from his miracle-working activity, and secondly, from the fact that he fulfilled so many prophecies of the Old Testament, it was, it was a function of high-handed disbelief to turn your back on him, not confusion. On the other hand, I do believe that the mystery was so deep of the God-man that, that uh, Paul says something later on after his campaign. Remember Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become Paul the Apostle, uh, says in a testimony, uh, he says, I verily thought within myself I ought to do these things against Jesus of Nazareth. And, and another time he says that he was, he was mercied because he did this ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, what I'm saying to you, and I'm not saying it very well, but I've got to leave it alone, is that as unmistakably legitimate as Jesus' claims were, they were that difficult and more. His claim to be the God man to a Jewish audience. And you know what it took to finally convince thousands and thousands of people? It took the resurrection. And we've got that going for us. So we can kind of measure his claims given the resurrection. But remember, this is a generation that didn't, hadn't seen him come back. They'd done a lot of miracles. But his claim was, was staggering. Well, the second time he speaks, and it's tremendously, uh, I love this passage, but uh, there are two thieves, you know this, and the one thief continues to rail against Jesus, and the other thief finally, having railed against Jesus, finally comes to faith and realizes, and I think because of the way Jesus is carrying himself and so on, I think, uh, but, but whatever it is, finally he turned to Jesus and said, uh, Master, remember me when you come into your kingdom. I love that because it is so Old Testament, and blessedly so. You know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saint had full confidence in resurrection. I mean, Job, one of the earlier, you know, he, he knew there was going to be a resurrection unto a kingdom where a Messiah would rule and so on. But the grave was, was really dark. They had no, what's the Old Testament word for the grave, remember? Sheol. And it's the word where everybody goes. It's where the lost go. It's where the saved go. It's where donkeys go. It's where plants go. Because we don't know anything about it. It's just this dark. You go, you're coming out. But boy, in the meanwhile, who knows? It was a darksome thing. And this thief says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's so solid Old Testament. And I think Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'll do better than that. Today. That man's the first man to ever die in human history with the confidence he was going immediately to a place of paradise. You can't get that out of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, no, no, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a remarkable thing. But then, uh, of course, you have the scene with his mother, which I love to park. I mean, there's so much to be learned there. But... Uh, one of the most winsome and instructive and challenging studies in the life of Jesus is his relationship to his physical family. He was the elder brother. He was a surrogate father. He had overseen the spiritual upbringing of his siblings. He loved his family. He had been rejected by his family. As he hung on the cross, think about this. I haven't got time for this, but just think about this. 
Why did Jesus turn Mary over to John? There are those who will argue that it was because of the family was poverty-stricken. I absolutely reject that. Uh, he had able-bodied brothers. It is the responsibility. This is, a, this is a spiritual reality I find important to remind my kids of more and more. But, but it is the responsibility of children to care for their, for their parents in their old age and so on. And Jesus would have been wicked, honest to goodness, to relieve his siblings of that, given their able-bodiedness and so on. No, no, the reason that Jesus turns his mother over to the spiritual care of John the Apostle is because his brothers are unbelievers. We know that. Now they're going to come to faith. We know that as well because in Acts chapter 1, well, you've got in 1 Corinthians 15 where Jesus appears to James and we take that usually as his moment of conversion, his half-brother James. And then in Acts 1 when they gather in the upper room, the 120, it says Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters were there. So they've come to faith and they're part of Pentecost. And then, of course, James becomes very important to the New Testament church and, and so on. So my point is we know the rest of the story. Now think about this, honest to goodness. If you allow yourself to think of Jesus as sort of just dressed up like God, always in constant exercise of this omniscience and knowing everything, why, why did he turn Mary over? Does that make sense? If he knew that, that his brothers were going to become believers and everything would be okay, as it were, why did he turn? I don't think you can make any sense of it. And the fact is, I think that Jesus, he was God, very God, and if the Spirit of God had directed him to know that, he, he could have known that. But by reason of his, his kenosis, he had, cho- he, had, he, had, he, he had chosen to know only that which the Spirit directed him to know. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, he, had, he, he, he did not know. Now, what that means to me is that as Jesus hung on the cross, his heart was heavy because his own brothers had rejected the truth. And he was dying a death of unspeakable horror. And his own brothers had refused to embrace it. Now, do you have loved ones who are lost? You know, is your heart heavy for them? Does it mean anything to know that Jesus has been there? He knows exactly what that is. He knows what it is. Do you think Jesus loved his family any less than you love your family? There's never a man who loved his physical family more carefully than Jesus did. And even on the cross, he has a heart for his mother and his, his, his responsibility is the eldest son. But I think what you have here is, is undeniable evidence that Jesus' heart was, he knows what it is to have a heart heavy with the fact, you know, those whom you love best have the greatest capacity to break your heart and Jesus knows what that is. Well, I, I got to hurry. Then you have the last three. Now, folks, again, This is an amazing scene. What happens is the sky grows dark. I don't believe it's a thick darkness like in the days of the plagues where you couldn't see your fist in front of you. I think it was just a pall, just a grayness that descended on the earth. I don't think it was an eclipse. I think God pulled a curtain of grayness over the most awful scene in human history. And for three hours, Jesus says nothing. He hangs there in unspeakable terror. Because I think it is during these three hours that Jesus is, because he he says, at at the end of those three hours, he cries out and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, folks, what you have going on here, I believe with all my heart, is atoning spiritual death. When we think of death, our mind goes immediately and almost exclusively to physical death. Now, physical death is a reality, and I do not believe it's Bible Institute stuff. I think it's exactly what the Bible teaches. When you think of death, it's not the cessation of being. The Bible knows nothing of that. It is separation. Now, the first time we're introduced to death in Genesis, God says to Adam, don't eat of that tree, because in the moment you eat it, in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And the curious thing is, I think the way we read it a lot of times is, he ate it 938 years later, sure enough, he died. But it says in the day that you eat it. And I know some people try and mess with the absolute and infinitive absolute there and make it, you're going to die slowly. That's not what it means. What it means is, when you eat it, you'll die. Because you know what? 
Before they ate of that fruit, they had known what it was to walk in the cool of the day in perfect fellowship with God. But now they are alienated from God. They're fleeing from God. Their hearts are unspeakably burdened with the reality that they've been, they've been, that they have in fact alienated. They're under God's judgment. They're fleeing from Him. That's spiritual death. To be separated I believe that's what hell is all about. Now, I believe hell is hot. I believe it's, but I don't believe that it's the fire that makes hell to be hell. God created you with one overarching, basic, compelling longing, and that is to know God and to fellowship with Him and to find yourself in hell eternally alienated from the God who made you and who is the only one who can give you any delight in your soul spirit. I think that's the point. See, that's what we call spiritual death. Now, physical death is also... But you know what? I'll tell you something. Physical, you know what it takes for God to fix physical death? You know how hard it is for him to fix physical death? Lazarus, get out here. That's how much work it is. But let me tell you something. To fix spiritual death, it took the death of the God-man. The spiritual death. And Jesus is going to hang there, and I don't even know what this means, folks. But I, I like to say, you and I know from Scripture that God exists in triunity, right? In plurality. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, and you don't either. But it certainly means that there is, between the persons of a triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, there is a, a oneness and an intimacy and a union and a love and a compassion which we can only begin to imagine. And whatever that infinite oneness is, for those hours on the cross, in a way that I can't fully understand, but Jesus was judicially disfellowshipped. He was forsaken by the Father. And that's what filled his heart with terror. And that's what I believe is, is a virtual infinity of suffering. I, don't, I think we will spend eternity eternity exploring what it means for the father to forsake the son in that fashion and the infinity of love that exists in the triune relationship is perhaps our best index of the infinity of suffering that jesus endured and he was doing it on our behalf now let me tell you something all throughout the old testament you have from the very from the garden you have this principle that God will accept the shed blood of an innocent victim of his choosing who can die the death that you deserve to die if you will entrust yourself to it. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, whenever you have a sin sacrifice of any sort, when that sacrifice is slain, the worshiper lays his hands on that sacrifice. And it doesn't mean just to touch it. It means to to support yourself. Can I borrow your shoulder, bro, here, just a minute here? This is the picture. This is the sacrificial animal. I'm going to lean on him like this. You just imagine what that was like. I always like to say, we, we don't do this today, but let's just do it in your mind's eye. Let's make it Passover. Let's say that it's Passover, and I like to say that because, and I think this is so huge, the Passover lamb had to be with you for four days. You had, to, you had to have it inspected, and that lamb had to be in your home, and you got to know it, and it got to trust you, and so on. So now you've had that lamb, and maybe the kids have given it a name, and so on, but now comes the day of Passover slaying. And you take that lamb, and you're carrying its heart is beating fast, and it's pressing up. You know what? You know what? The Old Testament system of sacrifices was designed to assault your physical senses. It, 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 was, a, it was a jarring thing. And I want you to, just, just imagine, you have this little lamb and you're carrying it and you're close to you and it's so nervous because there's so much commotion and so on, but it's learned to trust you and its heart is beating fast and you feel its flesh and so on. But now comes the moment where you set it down in front of the priest and you lay your hand on its back and its shoulders and you rest yourself there. And while you're in that position, the priest comes and with one very carefully, very careful stroke of a carefully honed knife, he slits the lamb's throat. You're going to smell that blood as it's evacuated. You're going to watch as those eyes roll back in death. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to hear the bleeding sheep uh, of the sheep and so on, the dying, the gurgling in death. In a few hours, you're going to take that home and eat it. Every physical sense is being assaulted. And as you lean in that fashion, you're going to collapse on top of it. You're going to have to stand up and brush yourself off a little bit. Why? Had God put men through that for all those hundreds of years? Well, in that moment, God is teaching you two remarkable truths. 
And the one is this, that there's a God in heaven who is thrice holy and he will not tolerate sin and the wages of sin must be death. He never deliberated that. He didn't decide that. It is given in his nature that the wages of sin is death and there must be death. But the second lesson is that that same God is so loving and so careful that he has provided an innocent victim who can die the death you deserve to die. That's what's happening, folks. That lamb is dying my death if I lay all my weight on his back. He's got, I've got to depend upon him. Does that make sense to you? Now, I think you take those hundreds of years, and then you flash forward to that day when John the Baptist sees Jesus emerging in the wilderness. In John one twenty nine, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. See, I think all the angels, I don't know for sure if angels got foreheads, but if they do, I think every one of them went, I got it. Now I see. Wait a minute. Those were only pictures. And the fact is that Jesus has become the God-man in order to become our lamb. And so now we look up and we see Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's dying my death if I simply lean myself on him. Now the next, I've got to be done. But I always think this is a little, I thirst. I mean, you got these seven sayings, and this one seems to be a little bit about which one of these is not like the other exercise, doesn't it? I mean, I thirst. Well, actually, you go to John 19, and I haven't got time to develop it over much, but I think it's so huge because it's all a package. Jesus is hung there now for six hours. For the last three hours, he has known the agony of soul that is associated with being forsaken by the Father. If there's anything we know about it, it, it just, about crucifixion, just physically, that it just saps your, your, your body of every drop of moisture. And I think now he has hung there for six hours. He has cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And now, folks, and I don't do well with this, but now he has something else to say. And I'll tell you something. He's died. He's given himself to have the capacity to say this. And the whole universe has longed to hear him say this. But his body is so emaciated that he doesn't have the strength to say it. And so I think probably in a whisper he says, I thirst. And somebody standing next to the cross hears and in a moment of compassion goes and fetches a little sponge. And, and I picture as they lift that sponge to Jesus' face and he, he takes whatever moisture he can out of that cheap soldier's wine and he tries to bring a little bit of life back to his throat and his voice box because he has something to say. And, and it's... We've longed to hear him say it, but he doesn't have the strength to say it. And now he gathers himself, and he says, it is finished. It's finished, folks. I can't get past that scene. I look at that, and I think how it must break the heart of a giving God for me to think I can add anything to that. Jesus said, it's finished. It's a word that means the books are balanced. The price is paid. The debt is covered. It's finished. I believe the atoning work happened on the cross, that in those awful moments when he was forsaken by the Father, he knew spiritual death. And then he cried out, Father, no longer my God, my God, but Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he endured physical death. And his body is going to be laid in a tomb. Folks, I've got to be done. Listen, we've got to get him out of that tomb. The, I have said to you early on that the means by which God proves true a man's claim to be a divine messenger is miracle. The single greatest miracle in all of human history is that time when Jesus walked alive out of the grave on the morning of the third day. And when he emerged from the grave, he was demonstrated. Romans 1 and verse 4, he was declared. I think I told you before that that word declared, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. And that word declared is actually our word horizon. And it's exactly that picture that it was, it was spread across the horizon in a way that cannot be mistaken. That now, now, we read that verse in John 1, 19. Why was Jesus crucified? After he had been demonstrated to be guiltless as far as the sedition is, he was crucified because he claimed to be the Son of God. And he was declared to be the Son of God in a powerful way by the resurrection. I said to you earlier that, that, that the Romans had, had fine-tuned crucifixion in, so it would be characterized in three ways. It would be cruel, it would be lingering, it would be public. There's a fourth way, and this is huge. And I asked the question, 
Why do you think it was? And the Bible doesn't give a sure answer, but I'm going to give you my answer. Why was it so important that he, be de- that he die by crucifixion? If I be lifted up, then you'll know. If I be lifted, I'll draw him into myself. Why? The fourth thing, the fourth way in which Roman, the Romans wanted crucifixion and insisted it be characterized, it had to be absolutely publicly certifiable that he was dead. The man had to die on a cross. When you went to a cross, you were going to come down dead. There had to be physical demonstration. That's why the spear, the spear was, was, was inserted and the blood and the water came forth to demonstrate that his heart had failed and so on. That's hugely important. I've read where if a man was crucified and inadvertently they brought him down and he, on the ground, there was a last puff of a breath or flutter of an eyebrow and then he died or of an eyelid and then he died on the ground, all the soldiers assigned to that detail were immediately put in a cross. Now that's how strongly Rome felt. Because why? Because they were trying to put down sedition. And the last thing they wanted was the rumor to get started that somehow the man had survived the ordeal and the sedition could go on. So he had to die on the cross. And I think that's the point. You know, stoning could be botched. It really could. We're still... Remember Acts 14 when Paul is stoned outside of Lystra and he gets up and goes into town and we're saying, what, are they bad aims? What's going on there? We don't know for sure. But I'll tell you something, crucifixion couldn't be botched. And the fact is that by reason of the fact that he died at the hands of Rome, by the reason of the fact that he died by crucifixion, you, I can't say how thoroughly you got to stick your head in a deep hole to come up with the idea that Jesus swooned on the cross, that he didn't really die. The fact is the Romans would never, ever allow a man to come down off that cross until it had been absolutely demonstrated that he was physically dead. And if he was physically dead when they took him off the cross, then when he showed himself alive by 40 days, we have that little chorus, and I love it, but it always draws me up short, that says, from the cross to the grave. Remember that? From the, what does it say? From the earth to this, from the, I don't know. But, but from, the, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Oh, be still my heart. No, you see, there were 40 days. If he had gone from the grave to the sky, what do you think? Christianity ever would have got legs? See what I'm saying to you? Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. He went to Galilee. He spent most of his time in Galilee. You know why? Because that's where he spent most of his ministry, and that's where most of the people were who knew him by sight and could absolutely affirm that this is Jesus, the Nazarene, and he is back from the dead. And he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs, and thus he absolutely beyond any any shadow of a doubt he demonstrated not only he demonstrated that he was look he demonstrated that he was everything he claimed to be and that he could do everything he had claimed he came to do by means of the resurrection from the dead we're late let's have a word of prayer our father in heaven i thank you so much for the time we've had i i i pray that as we have had opportunity to come face-to-face again with this remarkable narrative that it would indeed uh, grip our hearts. Father, we pause to worship you as a good and giving and loving God. We worship you as a God who is absolutely consistent with his character and will not allow his character to be compromised. And in order that he might, you might be at once both just and the justifier of them that believe you sent your son to die our death on our behalf, to pay our price. Father, Your son came and lived a life that we never could have lived in order that he might die a death that we never could have died and in so doing pay a price that we never could have paid. And now, Father, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. It's a dear price. It's a price that we will celebrate and explore throughout eternity. But, Father, help us to remember that our opportunity and obligation now is to glorify you who have purchased us to yourself. We give you praise in the name of our Savior. Amen. Amen.